Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Episode 55 is a conversation with Rory Barnwell, principal at DLR Group. We talked about how building design and commissioning are changing these days due to new technology and the aftermath of the pandemic. Specifically, Rory makes the argument that the commissioning agent's role should expand into smart building consultant. We went through another insider look at indoor air quality, and he took me through the keys to success today, as well as some of the unproven snake oil out there. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast episode 55. Hello, Rory. Welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, James. I'm Rory Barnwell with DLR Group, based here in Chicago. And uh, yeah, glad to be here. Glad to be on the show. It's my favorite podcast, so it's great to be on my favorite podcast. <laughs> oh, thanks for saying that. We've been trying to plan this for months, so I'm glad that we finally yeah. made it happen. Can you start with your, your background? Give people context here. Who are you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, if you can't tell from the accent, I uh, grew up in Ireland. And so I went to school at uh, Dublin Institute of Technology, Bolton Street for the Irish listeners. And I know there is a few Irish listeners because so, I get some feedback. So we graduated there and moved to the States probably back in 97, 98. At the time, it was easy for us to get a visa to come over for the summer in between, you know, school and come over work for the summer and have some fun okay. and go back with some money in our back pocket and some good stories. And lots of good stories. Probably lots of good stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Moved over with a bunch of my hometown best buddies and, you know, still still a tight group. But also made some lifelong friends. And, you know, that's why I'm still here in Chicago, just because it's such a great city and kind of fell in love with the place when I got here. So, yeah, after I graduated, moved back full time in 2000. You know, again, we were at the time young, free and single. Me and the buddies were working in a Chicago, the Chicago Sailing Club and working at a couple of bars around town and met my wife while I was working, checking IDs in one of those bars, Sheffield's up on the north side, just a couple of blocks out of Wrigley, if you know it. And uh, yeah, I actually got a job, my first proper job that same week. So I went to work at a MEP design firm called Henneman Raffaison at the time, based out of Champagne. You might know it down your neck yep. of the woods there. Yeah, I was very lucky to have a great mentor in Al Raffaison. German immigrant kind of took me under his wing and taught me what was important in the industry and what's not important, what not to get stressed out about and what to pay attention to. So that was uh, some valuable lessons earlier on. Spent about, I suppose, nine years or so at Henneman. Kind of, and I think that was valuable kind of foundation of the, just the engineering fundamentals uh, for mm. me. And just growing up in the MEP world, I think gives slightly different perspective on, on things these days. But then I had an opportunity with a, a partner of mine to actually start a startup company with some capital investment from, funnily enough, a ceiling grid manufacturer who wanted to diversify into a more services prior, just have a services arm and the services they decided to, you know, this is back in whatever, 2008, nine, you know, when really the high performance buildings were the buzzword and there was really no, you know, people still a lot of uncertainty or, you know, we wanted to create a best in class 
firm that focused on building performance, energy modeling, commissioning, energy auditing, retro commissioning at the time. And so we did that for three years and then capital got pulled, unfortunately. And so I, I actually moved on to DLR Group where I'm at now. And I had actually been working with DLR Group as a as a consultant for many years, and I always admired just the concept of an integrated design firm. You know, where all the all the professionals are at the table early on. You know, I felt like felt strongly that that was the right way to approach design projects is to have all interested parties at the table early and and provide an input. So yeah, kind of grew that side of the business into DLR Group, and kind of here I am today, eight years later. <laughs> Can you explain really quick how that integrated approach is different than other ways to uh, set up a design firm? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think even just look at my own experience and, you know, at an MEP design firm, you're very focused clearly on just the, the MDE and the P and the FP drawings. And so you don't necessarily get a whole lot of input. And usually, you know, back in the day, the architect threw you over some square boxes to put pipes and ducts into and, you know, try and fit them in and do your best. And, you know, versus, you know, really impacting that design. Early on, energy modeling was a, a key tool for that. Building performance optimization early on, whether you're talking about integrating, you know, I think that's an area we still are working on here in the States that maybe I see people are still a little bit ahead in, in the UK and Ireland and Europe in general, just on passive design strategies and incorporating natural ventilation, thermal massing, solar shading, those kinds of strategies in early. These are not things you can kind of bolt on. Yeah, so that was... When you're when you're talking about integrating those types of strategies, it, they really need to be done early and you know with everyone at the table, given given input. So yeah. that's really for me the siloed approach of specialties versus, and you can still have an integrated project, integrated design project with different consultants. But I feel like it uh, brings an extra kind of dimension when when they're all under one roof or. Or 29 roofs at the LR. So we're, you know, we're, we're about 1200 people and 29 offices across the country, Shanghai and Dubai as well. So and I guess it's probably more like 1200 roofs right now, not, not 29 because we're all working from home, but I'm downtown today. But. Got it. All right. And you mentioned your, your team. So what, what do you focus on? within all of that same kind of uh services you know kind of grown smart building consulting out of the commissioning group you know that kind of operationally focused mindset we would have transitioned our you know what we want traditional retro commissioning commissioning for new construction we've kind of evolved that really we're very passionate about integrating analytics to that process and really having a data-informed approach to commissioning to monitoring-based commissioning so we kind of left behind retro commissioning projects probably six or seven years ago cool. and uh, really now in the last year or so really super focused on how do we enhance the commissioning process as well by wrapping in analytics and and then also whether whether it's on our own projects or other people's projects working in that kind of smart building consultancy role as well got it cool lots for us to dig into there yeah yeah for sure yeah first the last time we talked though was last summer well we've talked on all of our pro gatherings that you've oh yeah attended, mm-hmm. but we talked last summer at the Big Shy event. Can you talk about what Big Shy is? Oh, Big Shy, yeah, it's a great little group. Big Shy stands for Building Intelligence Group Chicago, and it really is an offshoot or building on the good work that Big TC, Building Intelligence Group Twin Cities, Brad Colt up there did a great job kind of pulling the, you know, herding the cats together up there. It's really, I guess the intent was to have a local conversation over beers, you know, generally would hit a local brewery or in our case in Chicago, we had 
gatherings at, at people like ESD and ourselves and Gansler. And they were kind of the usual suspects of where, where we'd have the meetings and who'd be there and kind of grew. Well, we had monthly meetings, usually 60, 70 people showing up. Same concept as yourself, leave the marketing BS at the door and just come in and have a chat and let's try and figure this thing out together. And that's probably one of the biggest things I've missed over this past year plus. Clearly we're in a people business and it's a relationship business and we can get by on Zoom and Teams for a while and we will continue to do for a while more. But at the end of the day, we need to get back out and meet people and, you know, yeah. continue those relationships. I'd say you could probably generalize it as the same crowd that would show up at Railcom once a year. We're showing up at these uh, events once a month. So... Well, I like so, it because we're we're a local business. Buildings get built by, for the most part, local yep. people, right? Yeah. And so that, that's the reason when I was there, I was really blown away by, you know, it, these are all the people that are doing this in Chicago right now. And it'd be mm -hmm. really cool if we had one of those in every city of the world. Uh, I mean, when I was in school in Ireland, I was learning about the, the birth of the skyscraper in Chicago. And it was always a destination. It's the architectural design hub of the world. That's same with smart buildings now. I feel like there's so so many good firms here in Chicago and they're competitors, but they're not really competitors. You know, co-opetition, we're all in the same. It's all, how do we make the pie bigger? Not how are we slicing up the pie? So I think it's very much that, that kind of attitude and how do we work together to make it better for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. Really cool. Yeah, so shout out to those guys, everyone in the Twin Cities in Chicago. Keep yep, up. Yep. Try looking to forward it. to, to Actually, yeah. I'm trying to bring it back in, in June here in Chicago. So look out for an email, folks, from myself or... Uh, or Ben Disney from Honeywell. He's been kind of helping me keep the thing moving forward. Helping me very good about communicating these past couple of months, but we're going to have an outdoor event that'll get things back on track. Nice. Very good. And if people are looking forward or uh, wanting to start their own chapter in some other city, I'm sure they could reach out to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Reach out to myself or Brad. Brad's really the man to kind of get the advice from. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely do that. If you're wondering whether I think that should happen. I think people all around the world should be starting these chapters. It'd be so cool. I know. Yep. Cool. Let's, let's jump into my usual suspect of a topic. Let's talk about analytics a little bit in the context of the commissioning practice you, you talked mm -hmm. about. So can you just talk about your just overall sort of analytics driven approach, which to my knowledge is like you said, you've been doing, you know, analytics based commissioning for six or seven years. Mm -hmm. It was rare then, and it's probably pretty rare still today. Mm -hmm. Can you can you talk about why you approach it that way? Yeah, for sure. I think probably the catalyst for that for ourselves and probably a few other firms in Chicago was a pretty attractive incentive program, comment monitoring based commissioning program, and prior to that, retro commissioning program. Again, pros and cons to it, but the pro. I'll, you know, the pros were we, we got to introduce analytics to buildings for building owners got basically connected to, you know, we got a 25 grand incentive to integrate SkySpark to a million square foot building like I'm sitting in right now and a dollar per term saved and a 10 cents per kilowatt hour saved after that, after integration. And so that sounds great. And we've you know had some great projects and made some good money out of that. I would I would say we always saw it as a means to an end to grow our practice and to learn how to integrate the buildings and to learn there's a lot of painful integrations in there too, I have to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I think when people get something for free like that, they probably, you know, and it's not all that it was built up to be. It's like, oh, okay. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just a difficult process, but, you know, we learned from that and we approached every project 
as a design firm in you know how can we how could we do this at a portfolio level how can we do this at scale how can we augment our own post occupancy evaluation process at DLR group you know so we all we we focused very very heavily on you know how we gathered the data organized it visualized it analyzed it with a heavy emphasis on organizing it mm. and i think that stood to us early on when, when you know we adapted haystack at a very very early stage and to to help that so that was uh, that was a that was a good learning curve for us. Yeah, the only thing about the ComEd program, so I, I used to be a trade ally. I think that's maybe oh, yeah. mm-hmm. that maybe yeah. don't, but the only thing about that program that I never liked is like the annual incentive stopped after 12 months, or maybe it was 18. Mm-hmm. I always I just never felt like that was enough time to really get things ingrained in the the owner's operational. Process. Yeah, that was a big, yeah, I would say that's a, an issue that, and you, you get the analytics for 12 months you, and it's obviously they're focused on savings, you know, so I mean, the reason the program's in place is because legislation was passed that mandated that private utilities had to, you know, reinvest 1.5 or so percent of their revenue into energy efficiency programs, so, mm-hmm. that, you know, took and was in the form of standard incentives, like just switching out lights, prescriptive incentives, you know, custom incentives, like you know, putting in a new chiller plant or upgrading a boiler plant. And really these were the building optimization incentives, but still, you know, again, very focused on energy savings. So whereas we are kind of approached it in a broader, how can we use this now that we've got this data, we've, we're connected to the BMS, the lighting control system, the energy meters, uh, you, know, what, you know, we can do lots more stuff with this or, and yeah, and we did, we do. And that's what evolved into our smart building consulting practice, but still, Pain along the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we just got done with, what was that last week? K-Stack Connect, time's flying, but. Yeah, yeah. I remember you guys had won an award back in 20, the the last time we all got together in person for the ASHRAE conference. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Like in 2019 down in Atlanta. Yeah. So yeah, we got yeah. DLR group were recognized with the uh, Haystack Award at the, at the ASHRAE conference down in Atlanta. It was a great all night. It was like the like the Oscars and at the Control Trends Awards. So that yeah. was, uh, yeah, that was great fun. So Why did you get recognized for the award? Well, I think it was honestly our approach to organizing data. As I said, you know, we, we brought on a lot of Haystack experts early on to help that because we you know, seeing the big picture of how we we're going to grow out of the monitoring-based commissioning program into, you know, utilizing analytics at a broader scale to help drive a, a whole design firm and, and really drive drive help drive the industry forward and just participation at skyposium just developing data tagging apps and throwing them out to the community to to use i think just the, all those little things added up but yeah it was a still have it proudly displayed up here by the dartboard in the office so <laughs> nice very good and it's amazing. And now, you know, I think we've kind of come full circle. I mean, two years ago, people were like, hey, stack what? I mean, what, you know, the rest of the firm is like, okay, what, what is that? You know, and now when you start to see it embedded into RFPs and hard requirements, you know, whether it's Haystack or Brick or whatever, just that data modeling is, has become so front and center and so important. And it's just cool to see that the mainstream industry is actually really starting to sit up and take notice and, and it's probably in the, you know coming through this pandemic will be one of the one of the the big silver linings coming out of it is that we're organizing this data in a meaningful way and and presenting it and and you know the the whole concept of the independent data layer that you've been touching on here lately as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
before we like move on from commissioning, I did want to give a shout out to Shadi, who mm-hmm. my course, who's on your commissioning team, I believe, right? Yep. So, Shadi's uh, rockstar. Yeah. Yeah. So she had, to, yeah. Again, we we're trying to get get the info from her on what happened during the course, and she's teaching the younger engineers, and we're going to sign a few more up. And uh, yeah, she had a great experience on there. So that was that was fantastic. And. She was a graduate of Monash University in Australia as well. So it was a, a good full circle conversation there recently as well. Yep. Yep. Yeah. She she reached out to me and said, this is awesome. <laughs> it's a <laughs> yeah. small world out there. Um, it sure is. That's for sure. Cool. So I think, you know, I've been out of the commissioning game for two years now, which is crazy. But can you talk about how those processes are evolving to sort of meet the new needs of today? Yeah. You know, I think... With commissioning again, carrot and the stick, you know, the, the stick being code acquired, IECC code required commissioning. That's like a and a necessary thing to keep the conversation. It's like with lead commissioning, you know. So you kind of roll your eyes a little bit when you say these things, all oh, lead commissioning, all oh, IECC commissioning, you know, because there's it's not quite full commissioning and it's a little disappointing. Usually you're saying it with a disappointing kind of context. No, it's just just code required commissioning. Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah. I think it's evolved now. I think a large part of the industry has moved on from, you know, we haven't having to convince people to do commissioning because that's pretty much the conversation that we've been having for the last 10 or 12 years, right? Here's yeah. the benefits of commissioning. And so I think we've maybe moved past that. Like, all right, the benefits of taking that car for a test drive before you hand the keys over to the owner, right? And uh, I think how it's evolved and, you know, again, what was going back to analytics, uh, using the analytics through the functional testing period, being able to deploy it and test in 100% of terminal units, for example, you know, it's been able to have more control remotely. But probably more important for me is that just the concept of a soft landing phase after the first day of business and hmm. looking out 12, 18 months and having that bump-free transition, bridging that gap between, you know, the owner's project requirements or what you know what was what was stated as very valuable outcomes early on in the project during design, making sure that those outcomes are still being achieved throughout construction and ultimately ultimately on final, you know, upon handover to the owners, you're, you're delivering a building at peak performance. But again, um, ironically, going back to monitoring-based commissioning and the ComEd program, the most successful projects we had were the newer buildings because they had good control systems and just that whole concept of, of a drift after, after handover. And because they had good control system we were able to rein in that drift hmm. but i think now with 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 a, a soft landing approach and engaging those analytics prior to testing and beyond first day of business and ultimately for the life of the building we can avoid that drift and really have, have a more robust warranty review before the contractors cut loose and really give the facilities team confidence that that it, the building's going to maintain peak performance ongoing totally this is something that you and I connected about also a couple of months ago. I did an episode on Siemens podcast about this. And I, I think you said oh, yeah. your, your team enjoyed it. Yeah, we did actually. Yeah, we had well, we had a, an interview with Caltech the next day and it was a successful interview. So that was for a commissioning project down there. And, and again, there's looking about what I'm saying here now is not new for DLR group or new for the industry. There's people like Altura yeah. and associates have been doing it for a long time. People like Caltech have been pushing this for a long time. And uh, in fact, I go back to an article that was written, I believe in 2016 in Ashray that yeah. Altura wrote on connected commissioning. And I've, you know, 
I feel like they were, I'm pretty sure they were the ones that coined that phrase originally, but they definitely, definitely pushed the ball forward quite a bit. And funnily enough, the, the Haystack Award we got in 2019, they had got the year before. So it was okay. always, always a firm we've, we've looked up to. We've worked together uh, since then on, on a couple of projects. And uh, so it's good to, good to see players like that continuing to do well. Yeah. Yeah. And whenever I started doing what they call connected commissioning, it was them who I like, I was like, you know, younger brother or stepbrother, like yeah. every <laughs> other day, like, how do you handle this? How do you handle that? And yeah, I love the guys at Altera. And the cool thing is when you go back and reread that and then you put the article in the show notes, but that if you reread that article from whatever going on five years ago, almost now, it's still very, you know, still, still on point, relevant. still, still, mm-hmm. still relevant. Um, yep. So, so absolutely. So I, I want to bring up something that I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. As I've kind of dug into the industry over the last year with all these podcasts, and, and Altura is a great kind of segue, is the, the series I did with Matt Schwartz, where we unpacked, you know, what's kind of holding back the BAS industry, right? And, and what, what the obstacles are to sort of moving it forward from business to, you know, processes to technology. And one of the things that came up in that conversation, but also has come up in several other podcasts is that designers don't know anything about BAS, right? And so I wanted to talk to you about like, okay, how can we, like, what are the challenges in the the traditional design process and how can we kind of overcome those with how technology is changing today? And I realize it's a broad question, but- uh, Yeah, no, no, it's a a good question. I mean, that's probably- most of the issues that we have today in, 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 in on that side of the industry is we just copy and paste the last uh, yeah. points list and sequence and <laughs> boilerplates back into the next one. You know, as an industry collectively, that's been a been a criticism for the last couple of years. I would say we, there definitely are firms who, you know, all the ones I mentioned earlier and and many more who 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 get it and are kind of evolving more into that kind of smart building consulting role. When I say smart building consulting, that's maybe to differentiate between, because I, I feel like Brian Turner did a nice job differentiating between that smart building consultant and what an MSI does, because at the end of the day, you could kind of see both roles fairly similarly. But again, like I said earlier, I'd, I see the smart building consultant role kind of growing out of the commissioning practice and being that kind of owner's advocate and getting those outcomes embedded into the process early on and, and less focused on that prescriptive design path more focused on the outcome and what's the agile way we're going to get there um you know it's but yeah maybe i mean i think honestly from a design firm's perspective i think just doing the simple things right and getting the controls installed per how they're supposed to be and then after that getting the controls installed how they're supposed to be getting data flowing where it should be and letting the third party vendors and and you know everything else kind of fault detection diagnostics everything else you know that that can come after once you got a well-organized foundation so i think the if as an industry we just focus on getting that foundation right and leaving it open for technologies that we haven't even considered yet or are still being built as we speak so that's i feel like is the most important thing yeah i mean i feel like that owner's advocate owner's rep commissioning role really suits itself really well for just kind of mm-hmm. expanding beyond just HVAC performance and, and controls into yeah. the, the broader technology. I think so. And again, you know, it's been brought up before, but just it's a fragmented industry and how it's funded, how it's you know, still very linear, you know, it hasn't changed that much since I got into it back in 2000. I mean, the tools are a little bit different, but it's still, we're producing construction documents to, you know, bid competitively, low bid wins and 
low bid gets in and gets out as quick as they can. And at the end of the project, everyone's mad and everyone's trying to, you know, that's just across the board. That part hasn't changed too much. You know, clearly there's lots of exceptions to that. That's a generalization, but in general, the margins are pretty tight. So you don't have a whole lot of time at the end of the project, which is the most important part to, you know, that, that bridging that gap between construction and operations is still open and we'll see, you know, now there's, Lots of conversations, again, throwing in the digital twin into that, which I feel like is, is different again. But and I, I, I personally feel that the success for the whole digital twin concept moving forward will be doing those simple things right. You know, what well, it really is a digital twin at the end of the day. It's the dream that we were sold 15 years ago by, by Revit. When we were transitioning, I'm old enough where we transitioned from 2D CAD to Revit. And that was a much bigger transition because back then we had to put in new server racks and upsize the pipe to, you know, to literally increase the bandwidth to deal with this new software. Mm-hmm. But we were sold, yeah, it's going to be able to design better. You're going to have, you know, trash detection, schedule, time savings, et cetera. And also, by the way, it's going to be this facilities management operations tool. And so it's great for the owner too. And we were like, yeah. well, okay, sounds good in theory. And in 2004, you're like, I guess, you know, but 2021, you're still like, you still didn't do that, you know? So, <laughs> so I feel like if we just focused on delivering an asset model that was properly populated with the right bits, and again, we've tried to do that for years as commissioning agents with a systems manual. So that, that just needs to be standardized. It's deliverable of a spatially accurate, proper ag- asset registry into a model. And I feel like that hopefully... Going back to the cart and stick, that's probably a stick that's needed. And then the cart can be the live data and the analytics and everything else to build on top of that foundation. Totally. Two questions here. Mm-hmm. Let's forget the second one. The first one is if, if like the smart building consultant kind of morphs out of this commissioning role, how do you see the MSI as being different? Well, again, I think the MSI's role kind of grown out of controls contractors generally here in the States. We're doing a lot of work in Europe now. And in Ireland specifically, uh, coincidentally, you kind of see it over there. Ireland and the UK is kind of growing out more of the IT side of things and maybe low voltage IT kind of side. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say the MSI role is traditionally contractors and smart building consultants are traditionally, you know, engineering consultants and traditional consultants. So that's roughly how I see it. It's not always the way. There's good unicorn hybrids in between there. Yeah. Second question. I've been talking about the independent data layer a lot. Where do you see that coming in in the context of this digital twin? And that kind of, where does that show up? Well, I think probably the, the issue now is just there's so many point solutions and so many siloed, but, you know, this someone's got a sensor for XYZ, whether it's air quality or people counting or acoustics or, or whatever. And just that I feel like clients are, our clients at least are, kind of overwhelmed with how many different pilot projects of point solutions that they have. And there's no real, even air quality sensors, right? Well, we're going to try brand X and they've got a dashboard. What about brand Y? They've got a dashboard. They don't talk to each other. I got one sensor that needs to go in in an outdoor air duct and one sensor that needs to go on a wall and they're completely different. And so just grabbing that data and pushing it to a database that the owner owns or controls. And then, you know, the whole concept of a single pane of glass, but now the whole concept of what if we want to change out that single pane of glass? Yeah. What do you do then? And where, where does that leave your data infrastructure? So I think our more sophisticated clients right now are asking those questions and super focused on how we're 
acquiring that data, organizing it, pushing it up to their cloud, and and not so much super focused on the the MSI cell for this single page. We still clearly need to bring that to one place to to help the operations team. But then how how does that back into an enterprise solution? How does that back into that's a how do you take it from a single bespoke customized solution for building A and back it into 70 other buildings or 90 other buildings that we that we have across the portfolio. So everyone's got a, a superstar gem and you know jewel in the crown building, but then mm-hmm. how do you how do you back that into the rest of the buildings? So that's where most of the conversations are today, I'd say. Really cool. And you mentioned before we hit record that this the podcast came up in a project meeting recently. Yeah, it's oh well, I'd say not so much the podcast specifically, but I feel like it's uh, it's kind of really cool to hear terminology that we know that's been just talked about in this circle to come up in a project meeting on the other side of the planet, you know. So I think uh, kudos to you for providing this forum for all the nerds to kind of get together and and talk about that specifically on the pro gathering, I guess, you know. So conversations that 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 I hear in the pro member gathering that actually coming out in real project meetings from multiple people who are listening to the same thing, but but a really good, in a really positive way. So it's putting some clarity to, I mean, you could go with buzzwords here for the whole hour and people are still yeah. be like, wait, what are you talking about? You know, so it's like when you're cutting through the, really, what is that? You know, what is that independent data layer? What is a digital twin? So that's, that's really cool to see. Yeah, I, I even heard uh, recently, yesterday, I think it was, heard from one of our pro members who's developing a new product. And he wrote me an email and said, you know, like, we just released our new product and I got feedback from, like and he listed out like six or seven different pro members, like all these people that had mm-hmm. met in our pro gatherings. And then they had like basically collaborated on this new product. And I was just like, that is so like, how long would it have taken that person without the community, without all these people that are just willing to help him out? How long would it have taken him to get real feedback like that? And so those types of, sorts of things are, are happening all the time. And I just can't help but just like, smile and all. I mean you're, yeah yeah you have to sit back and have a have a little giggle when you see those things happening yeah. amazing <laughs> let's talk about thank you for that update on like just like how construction is evolving because that's one of the number one cor- like course questions I get you know I, I kind of present out this kind of like generic construction process in the course and then I kind of highlight all the ways in which things break down but it's helpful for me to get a kind of an update on like how things are evolving to kind of avoid those things uh, breaking down. So thank you. Let's talk a little bit about HVAC. So let's talk a lot about HVAC. So in 2021, obviously HVAC has become very famous. <laughs> yep. uh, and so kind of as we're, we're, we're mid-May right now, 2021. And so we're kind of like lights at the end of the tunnel, right? As far as the pandemic goes. So talk to me about like the state of HVAC design where we're at right now. Yeah, well, let's say hopefully the light's at the end of the tunnel. I, I, you put me onto another good podcast, and I say there, uh, Packy McCormick, and uh, he's, okay. he had a good one. Are we ever coming back? And so I think that was a couple of months ago at this point, and uh, mm-hmm. I had agreed with the majority of these points. So I guess you know, there's a few that I didn't agree with, but it was a, a very well put together essay, and I love that. And uh, he's had a few other really good ones too. I see uh, the the API one was really good as well. But yeah, we are. I'm, sitting in my office here today. Well, standing in my office here today. Our office is built out for 85 people. There's maybe still single digits here today. This whole building is a million square foot. And I know from having, you know, know the general manager here, there's still single digits occupancy. So I think we're tentatively coming back. And I would say that with the caveat that, again, we're doing really well with vaccines. And I know 
anecdotally that we're pretty much at 100% vaccinated here in our with our gang. So I'd say that is is giving some of our clients a little anxiety in that, hey, we thought everyone's going to be back when they got vaccinated. And hey, we thought everyone's going to be back when it got, the weather got better and it's the summer holiday, you know, summer time. And so I think now September is kind of, you know, we've told our principals come, you know, got to be back here in July and everyone else got to be back in, in September. So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty there, but Yes, I think the last year plus we've been grappling with ASHRAE guidelines, CDC guidelines, what's the right thing to do, what's the right mm-hmm. technology to, what do we need to do to impart a sense of trust and transparency and, and confidence in building operations that, hey, yes, safe to come back to the office, it's okay. So I think the majority of the initial early, you know, April 2020 conversations were, hey, can you check, tell tell our to write a little report to tell our tenants how much ventilation, how, you know, what MERV rating our filters are and what ratings, what stickers we have in the front door, you know, whatever. And so everyone's kind of done that, I feel like. So to varying degrees of of success, my personal opinion is I'm more, again, of course, going to be focused on the data and the performance of the systems and how do we, how do we share that data and share the performance versus putting another sticker on the front door. And again, that's the love-hate relationship I have with these rating programs because we wouldn't be probably doing commissioning and energy modeling and, and energy audits and retro commissioning if it wasn't for lead O&M and lead BD&C and those, those certifications pushing those into the mainstream in the first place. But, you know, even just with energy modeling, we're, you know, are we impacting design? Are we doing energy accounting? Are we, are we just documenting what happened at 100% CDs? Or are we doing that energy modeling up front, like I said, to impact design decisions? Same with commissioning. Same with these rating systems, you know, are we just putting a sticker on the front door just to give people a sense of security and not really, or should we be putting that money into the systems, into upgrading the controls? Again, while building, I'm a little skeptical of that too. When you see Robert De Niro and Lady Gaga on their uh, promotional videos, maybe we're paying too much for that while building program, you know, so... And these are for profit organizations, or I think they're public benefit corporations or whatever they call them, but they're not, you know, I'm on the board of three nonprofits. So I kind of get, I get a little irked when I see those kind of things, but I'd say taking care of those basics, everyone's kind of got, you know, again, Chicago, pretty progressive market, local 399 engineers here, everyone's doing a good job. So generally it was, yep, we're, we're hitting the mark of, you know, the Chicago ventilating code is very, is more stringent than Asher 62.1. Hmm. And even Asher 62.1 is a, I mean, again, that's probably part of the problems of our design and construction industry is that we're so focused on these uh, minimum standards. That's a you know, minimally acceptable standard for, for indoor air quality. So clearly we should be so focused on something above minimally acceptable. Totally. And and that's that's where we're at right now. These Luckily in Chicago, Chicago ventilating codes are a little more stringent and are to be bringing in more outdoor air. And so most of the, most of the bigger buildings had, have the ability to go full of economizer and you know, clearly can't do that when it's negative 20 outside or when it's 95 degrees outside. Most of the buildings would have had at a minimum MERV 13 filters. You know, again, I feel like a lot of the conversations revolve around the big shiny towers downtown, but then again, you know, we got to remember the schools and everyone else that's been struggling. And so most of them, that's a completely different conversation, same system, same problems, but no, completely different problems. I should say, you know, they've got Mervate filters and, you know, I've never, it was just, yeah, you'd be surprised with some of the stories we've, we've come across in school districts with people trying to save energy and (laughs) shutting out their air dampers and, you know, broken actuators on on unit ventilators and whatnot but yeah but you know i'd say the workplace office buildings you know just trying to get tenants back 
you know, trying to attract them back downtown. What can we, what, what, what can building owners put in, in, in their lobby, tenant amenities, tenant engagement apps, et cetera. So they, the good ones, I feel like have been focused on, we're working with Sterling Bay here in Chicago. They're very progressive, very progressive developer, owner, operator. They really pushed, pushed the boundaries on, on getting that real time data into their tenants' hands to give them that kind of trust and transparency. So you live or die by the data at the end of the day, not the sticker on the front door. Yeah. What are some of the things that are, they're doing well and some of the things that others are not doing well? Well, like I said, they have the advantage of, you know, they're a developer who, you know, they would have developed McDonald's global headquarters or Google's Midwest headquarters. Those kind of, you know, high-end buildings are just came out of the ground in the last four or five years. So they've invested in good HVAC systems. So it's less about... For them, it's about communicating what the good work they've already done. There wasn't a, a whole lot of big capital changes that they had to do. Interesting. I'd say that, I mean, the other end of the scale is you're, I mean, we're talking about A-class players there, you know, class A commercial office buildings. The other players are, the, you know, the B and C players that just either didn't do anything or are waiting for people to come back or, or hadn't been kind of progressive and proactive. And, you know, I think if you're not moving forward, you're, you're dying in this industry at the moment and you're you just have to do something so even the working with some of those quote-unquote b-class buildings which are just on the you know, west loop or not you know old 100 year old loft buildings that never had the best hvac to begin with so we've seen investment there in new air handling units new controls you know again trying to up their game there so mm-hmm. that's been all well and i guess the people who have been doing well is the people who have been doing anything you know just hoping people come back totally but i think there's a, a degree of nervousness and anxiety as i said that that business model even still works so that's they're, they're generally building owners are finding money from somewhere but it's more of the we have to do this it's not a, a, a nice to do got it hey guys just another quick note from our sponsor nexus labs and then we'll get back to the show this episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. I want to ask you a little bit more about design, HVAC design, but I want to set that aside because we're mm-hmm. really talking about kind of proving indoor air quality to mm-hmm. tenants and trying to get them to come back, right? So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit more about the types of data that you, you said data is key to, to this, mm-hmm. like basically mm-hmm. verifying what, what oh, types yeah. of data are you talking about? And the, the, uh, the, let's build on what Aaron Lapsley talked about. So I think he introduced uh, and we'll link to that episode as well. Aaron introduced the five different types of sensors that are packaged into reset. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so can you talk about kind of like the keys to the, the doing the data piece of indoor air quality well? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, again, kind of in the wild west here on the sensor front and the enhanced air cleaning front and all that. So I, I think if you brought it down again, we believe strongly in the reset air standard. That's kind of, in our opinion, the, the go-to global standard for air quality you can get the certification put the sticker on the front door but i think more importantly you can follow the standard and that's the big differentiator for reset so in following the standard you're looking at three targeted pollutants and 
temperature and relative humidity. Your three targeted pollutants are you know, CO2. Obviously, we emit CO2 as a natural human bioaffluent, so that is a good proxy for how well or how poorly ventilated the space is. Particulate matter, um, again, would have been a big concern for some of our West Coast clients with, with forest fires and everything, and, and actually a concern globally. You know, a lot of these sensors and, and initiatives came out of the Chinese market because the outdoor air quality so bad with smog and it wasn't unusual to see people walking with masks on the street back then and you know it was more of a badge of honor in china to have a reset you know, or just displaying air quality information in your lobby versus a, a lead gold plaque on the wall or whatever so particulate matter and then come new context these days with obviously particulate and spreading the whole infectious infectious uh, disease conversation and then vocs tvocs so total volatile organic compounds basically the chemicals in the air and that's been kind of in our in our mindset for many years whether we're working on lead projects and we need to flush out building the off-gassing of carpets and glues and adhesives and paints and furniture you know when you walk into a building or you know you get that new car smell that's chemicals right you don't want to be sitting all day in in that and uh, so they're the three target pollutants that the data is, is gathered on and so what does the conversation right now look like between the, the landlord and the tenant or the occupants basically saying, look, we have this standard mm-hmm. that we've met and here's some trends like yeah, they're showing. Yeah, that's a very, like, yeah, that's an interesting chart. question because that's very different, right? Because, you know, what a landlord can do and can control, like a landlord generally controls the base building systems. And so yeah. we look at reset no differently than, than lead, right? You can do lead corn shell and lead commercial interiors and likewise okay. with reset. And you're looking at different sensors. So I think from a landlord's perspective, promising the tenant that from the moment that CFM of air passes through the outdoor air intake and through the coils and through the filters and the enhanced air cleansing, if you have it or whatever, to the demising wall of the tenant space that we're delivering the highest quality air. And that's our promise to you. Landlord doesn't really control what happens after that. Landlord can't control if the tenant shoves 10 people into a conference room, if the tenant puts a carpet or paint or whatever that's going to uh, set off VOC levels. There's different sensor types for that are going to go into base building systems versus go on the wall uh, for a tenant space. And so then probably the more progressive clients we're working with on the tenant side are deploying these indoor air quality sensors full full coverage across their entire enterprise. And so they're that's- going beyond the, the wall of the tenant. Yeah. And then uh, they're pushing back on the landlords going, well, hey, how come- this is happening. How come this is happening? And so, so yeah, there's, it's an interesting dynamic between the tenant and, and, and the landlord. The new sensors? No, generally the tenant will put those sensors in and yeah. And I, and they're, you know, why they're doing it is to better understand how their space is being utilized to push notifications to employees. If temperature's getting too hot, I mean, I got a sensor behind me right here and I can tell you. It's a little toasty in my office today, <laughs> so. But uh, I'm not gonna. The chief engineer is a friend of mine, so I can't really bug him too much. But then also, you know, tracking temperature and relative humidity and really thermal comfort is is still as much of a. Just the whole concept of healthy buildings, you know, it's not a new concept. I and mean, even Dr. Joe Allen's book was published prior to the pandemic. I always think that's really cool because it's such as still a go-to for every one of these metrics afterwards yeah so not a new concept maybe just looking at it in a slightly different context we're not so focused on the productivity of the employee anymore right maybe it's mm-hmm. just getting the employee to actually come downtown and go to the office is more important <laughs> absolutely yeah it's interesting that the landlords don't i mean i understand why from a financial standpoint why they're not installing these sensors everywhere but that's the data that they need to convince the occupants to come back and so it's yeah. interesting to me that they 
sort of stop at the tenant wall because like you can't really prove anything about a space if you stop there like like return air you can do some stuff right 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 yeah i mean amenity spaces conference centers lobbies fitness centers definitely we're, we're going full coverage on those types of spaces for right. landlords and, uh, right. and and again given you know if you want to go do a yoga class at lunchtime i want to check see how many people are in the fitness center and mm. what's the air quality so right. they're the types of mainstream metrics that landlords are given their yeah. uh, tenants really cool Talk to me about snake oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is the Wild West here. <clears throat> um, I know you said Wild Wild West, but I've just been sort of like coming up with a couple different articles, you know, once a month or so in the newsletter. Mm-hmm, here's mm-hmm. the latest snake oil of the day. So what do you Yeah, seeing? I mean, there's a lot of greenwashing going on right now. I mean, some of it is harmless enough. I mean, the stickers on the door, I wouldn't count it as greenwashing. That's just one, you know, and again, at the end of the day, like I said, love-hate relationship with all of that. And even while, I mean, it's still a good process for formally documenting best practices and showing the public that you formally documented those best practices. So I'm okay with that in general. I think where I get kind of, where I start to think of the, the monorail episode of The Simpsons is when... You know, you get the enhanced air cleaning strategies and that that whole sales pitch of bipolar ionization, dry hydrogen peroxide, you know, that, and the list goes on and on. I would say UVGI has been kind of a tried and trusted solution. You know, if you were going to go with one of them, you'd, you'd go with that. And that's kind of ASHRAE have said so much that it's been tried and trusted. I've also said that kind of buyer beware and all the other stuff. It's not peer reviewed. There's no scientific peer reviewed data on it. There's no scientific data on how it's being used. And some the scientific data that is available like for bipolar ionization, that, that one just blows my mind. I mean, it's been tested in a cube the size of a shoebox and nobody's ever really tested it in the real world. And yet it's just, and now you're starting to see the lawsuits pop up and you're starting to see, and I, I feel like it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better because mm-hmm. people don't know. They just see, Okay, cleans the air. It's a good, good sales pitch. I got a couple of million bucks. I'm going to go buy this stuff. And we're starting to see, you know, some worrying trends. And I would say, you know, again, carrot and stick, you're going to monitor this data that we just talked about to, to provide that sense of trust and transparency, or do you have to monitor it? And I think now you're starting to see some, some glimmers of that happening in California, where if you're going to avail of that CARES Act funding and the, the local California funding for, for schools specifically, you have to make at least the CO2 data available to the office. So if you're a teacher in the classroom, you must have access to the CO2 data for your classroom. And now that creates a whole host of other questions on equity and you know which teacher gets the sensor or which teacher gets the sensor that actually automates a, a damper. And so they're the types of things that are starting to bubble up as issues now. So as I said, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, but it reminds me a little bit of the whole LED lights thing a few years ago. You know, it's just a similar kind of wild west. And then I think we're going to end up, you know, quite possibly with worse air quality than better. I mean, if we're, we're putting in technologies that are going to emit ozone or we're not quite sure of how they're going to react five years down the line or is they, are they going to oxidize we're putting positively and negatively charged ions into the airstream and people are breathing those in how does that impact people who knows we don't know it might be no problem but until we test it until there's some science to back it up we're engineers at the end of the day we, we're very risk averse in that regard so we try to keep it in line with ASHRAE guidelines totally so you guys have come out with your own software platform with IQ. yeah obviously it's aligned with the non-snake oil mm-hmm. yeah. portion of that conversation. Can you can you tell me more about this thing? Yeah, no, I mean, I think at the end of the day, what we really just put together is a, 
a nice little software platform that focuses on the data, organizing that data. It just happens to be IAQ data. Again, I think we we built it ourselves for our own need. We do a lot of reset projects. And so this is a reset accredited data platform. And so we're one of 10 trusted platforms to, if you're going to do a reset project anywhere, you know, we're one of 10 choices. But I guess our frustration was with the sensors that are out there. Again, again, I would say do not purchase a, an IAQ sensor unless it's approved by reset. And then even at that, you know, you need to leave yourself flexible. Well, I want to, I have no problem telling you our, our favorite one is Kytera and the Kytera SenseEdge Mini. And, you know, we don't have any affiliations with Kytera. You know, if there's a, you know, if anyone else has one that I think is better, give me a call and we can talk about it. But uh, <laughs> we like that one just because it's easy to calibrate. You just pop in and out the cartridges, you know, so you don't have to take it off the wall and mail it back to the factory like you need to do with the other ones. And, but I guess more so, they sell sensors. All of those guys sell sensors. They don't really sell good visual packages. They don't sell good analytics packages. And so again, we've built the platform on top of SkySpark. So it's got a, it's got a, a good analytics engine, I mean, best in class analytics engine. I think we're, you know, just like our, we've always been committed to Haystack and just general data organization. So making that data available between whatever different sec- sensor technology and, and the thing the sensors are, I mean, just that whole landscape is moving so fast. You don't know who's going to get venture capital next and who's going to build the next best widget. And so less focused on the widgets and more focused on the data that comes from the widgets and how do we, how do we pull that together? And I'd say, you know, really what more than anything else, trying to provide context between air quality, energy usage and thermal comfort and ultimately people counting. So, you know, if you tell me that my building told me they saved 40% energy in the last six months, I'd be like, well, geez, I'm still feeling a little warm in here, you know, so what's going, what's up with that? Maybe you should have been using a little more energy or, you know, you need to provide more context on those energy savings. Did you save them because you shut the outdoor air damper? And how does that impact the air quality? How does it impact the thermal comfort? How does that, how many people are even here to get that impact of building performance? So I think overall providing that context and, and really we're kind of democratizing the whole data set that hasn't been available, right? So we've, we've literally, it's the name of that side of the industry, the temperature controls industry. So we, we control things so you're not too hot or you're not too cold. So I can be not too hot and not too cold, but even be in horrible air quality. I can, yeah. you know, that can be, I can be in a school district that's not too hot, not too cold, but horrible energy performer or a great energy performer because I shut the outdoor air damper just to keep everyone comfortable. But the air, <laughs> again, the air quality is horrible. So again, clearly there's a couple of different extreme examples you could give there, but the sweet spot is getting air quality, thermal comfort, energy use, and the people that it serves. And so we're trying to keep it simple, you know, trying to just solve one one problem that we saw in the industry and and just build and, and grow it from there. So so yeah, it's been going well. We're actually we've been going very well. We started so kind of had a soft, soft launch before Christmas of uh, 2020. And again, kind of right time, right place for that kind of product. And I guess we had the luxury of starting to build. We've been building platforms for other people to kind of pulling in disparate data sets in bespoke kind of solutions. And this was something that we said, you know what, we should just focus on this one problem and build 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 a really good, cool, best in class solution to this one problem and, and grow it from there. And so we didn't have again the benefit of or we had the benefit of creating it during the pandemic when these problems and we weren't like, well, we used to be this, but now we're a room booking system or we used to be this or now we're something else that's not, you know, not quite what we were, but trying to hit on this new issue. So we're able to build it from ground up purely focused on this kind of the new issues. Cool. Really cool. Let's circle back on design before we close out. So where do we sit in terms of like, you have Fortune 100 company over here making huge carbon neutral goals. And then you have that same company that's filling an office building that's trying to maximize outside air. 
mm-hmm. as a designer, how, like, how do we build a building for that moving forward? I mean, that's, that's the, fu- I mean, that's the elephant in the room. It's the other shoe to fall here is that no one's really been talking about energy. You know, no one's really, I mean, we're working with clients that have committed to being carbon, a carbon negative by 2030 and have, you know, wiping their entire carbon footprint since their inception off the planet. And how do you do that? How do you, how do you provide, how do you provide context around you to, you still clearly need to, you know, if we're going to design a net zero building, it's very easy. If we just turn off all the lights and the HVAC and, and <laughs> close the door. I mean, I think someone once said a smart building is a, is a, is a fully leased building, but I think we're getting, you know, a smart building is a, is a fully leased, fully occupied building. And that's going to be the other, you know, elephant in the room here. Once we get, we get past this is that are, are people coming back? Are they coming back? And are we, are we, how are we attracting them back into these spaces? But yeah, as we as we progress on these carbon reduction goals and you know move toward net zero energy, and I think we've been kind of fixated. Even going back to those ComEd programs we talked about, I mean, clearly they're all driven by energy, energy reduction, energy reduction, energy reduction. Yeah. All these, you know, lead biggest you know waiting points is to is the energy points. I think again, another silver lining out of this will be stepping back and taking a more holistic view of cool. building performance. And and for us, that was always you know we did the first reset project in North America six, seven years ago. For us, air quality, indoor environmental quality was always our differentiator between energy company A and energy company B is that we, you know, we were looking at the big picture. So it's a little bit of a vindication on that approach for ourselves. But yeah, you have to, you can't, it's just putting all the different metrics in context. You have to, you know, you can't, you can't look at them in a, in a siloed approach anymore. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about like, if you, if you look at what happened in the last year, so many different aspects of the silos that are in our industry they all became a little bit weaker, right? Mm -hmm, Like the mm -hmm. argument to maintain the silos, it just became a little bit weaker in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Software processes just everywhere. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. And so I think we're, we're back, you know, again, it's like air quality and energy have traditionally been two ships passing in the night as my, my friend, picky chief engineer says. So we just have to have to bring that balance back together. Awesome. What else are you looking forward to the rest of this year, Rory? Um, well, honestly, there's the, the the projects that are in the pipeline here that have been designed or had the ability to kind of impact design post pandemic. There's 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 a lot of really good high quality product coming to the market here, and I think that again, that's good news for for the market and probably less good news for the BNC class players that, you know, there's going to be a flight to quality. I think that's been said before. And I think that's true. If you're going to attract people into these spaces, they need to be the best of the best. So excited to see that. We're working with Heinz on, a, on we would call them T-tree projects. I got the Irish accent there. I can't really say tree. It's not a tree like, a, like it grows out of the ground. Well, it is. Uh, it grows out of the ground. It's a heavy timber buildings, but uh, timber okay. technology and transportation. Okay. And we've got yeah, we're probably on number 12 or 13 of, of those coming out of the ground here. And it's just super high-end, sustainable uh, buildings. Cool. And so that, that's cool. That's exciting. And then, honestly, just uh, seeing that back-of-house conversation come in front of house and uh, quite literally the things that we've been talking about for years, when you see the, the leasing folks talking about it, you see you know Chicago Tribune headlines on it and you know <laughs> CNN articles on it, you know, I think it's it's exciting. It's a It's going to be little bit anxiety for some of us to to kind of i mean design for them you got to live up to your design right you got now you're going to have all these the post-occupancy evaluation process is going to be focused on outcomes and we're under pressure to hit outcomes operators under pressure to hit outcomes the level of expectations have gone through the roof but it's good for the industry because we needed that 
kicking the butt, I think, just to, 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 to get ourselves together. And I think we needed something collective to kind of, I mean, unfortunately, it was a global pandemic to make us focus on, well, what can we, what can we do here uh, as an industry to, to push this thing forward? But yeah, I think it's all positive stuff, all good stuff here. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for listening to all the past shows. Uh, yeah. And no. coming on for, for your own episode. I appreciated learning. Great stuff. Design um, yeah, good stuff. My daughters will be, will be glad to hear. I was actually on the podcast, so I'll have to have them listen to it. <laughs> good stuff. Oh, well, thanks a lot, James. Yeah, appreciate it. And uh, look forward to chatting again. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.